0: Welcome to the afternoon show, Bill Arnold, with you, and I'm still being joined by Dr. Glenn Pickering. He's going to be with me for the next half hour. Got some great questions coming in. We're talking today about anger and mm. that's a complicated subject. And there's a um, there's a desire that God has for you to be in right relationships, and that you can use this anger to be transformational. So hey, far, so good, Glenn. You got it. Okay, good. Um, all right, here's a question. Um, my brother's alienated just about everyone. He probably has undiagnosed bipolar, but he doesn't see doctors and refuses to get help. I've begged him very kindly to do so. I've established boundaries around myself to protect myself from his unbridled rage. So he texts and leaves abusive and retaliatory messages. I don't see a positive path since I'm no longer willing to endure his abusive behavior, and I haven't responded to his calls or texts in five weeks because of it. He hates that I'm no longer taking on the role he demands I stay in. Can you imagine uh, anything I can do posit- I can do to have a positive impact on my 55-year-old brother? Yes.
1: Thank you. So let me talk about that for a second. By the way, thank you for writing in because I'm sure there are lots of people who have very, very similar struggles. Not identical, but a whole lot similar. So if I have somebody in my life who literally is abusive, yes, I need to have what I call positive bound- or negative boundaries and positive. So let me talk about what I mean by that. Mostly when people talk about boundaries, they just mean negative boundaries. Here's what I will not tolerate. Here's what you can't do. Here's what I will not accept. This is what you can't do. Like, you can't be abusive. You can't talk to me that way. So I like that you haven't responded for five weeks because that sends the clear message, you can't do that. Now, and I get that he keeps trying to pull you back in your old world, but remember what I was talking about earlier in the show, that God is always about transformation. God is always about leading us in a whole different sort of direction. And, you know, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. So we have to change in order to be transformed. Now, so you already have a negative boundary. Great. Good for you. That's where you have to start. I will not do that. Now, if you're going to have a positive boundary, that means here's the kind of relationship I do want. And I start creating that. So if I'm you and I haven't talked to my brother for five weeks, I might reach out and say, Hey, just wonder how you're doing. And I'm going to send a little chat about three things that are happening in my life and just ask and then say, so what's going on with you these days? So in other words, I'm going to create a different way of interacting. I want to create a, not a little different, a transformationally different where I'm not in that role, where I tolerate abuse, where I pretend that's okay with me because it's just not. And by also establishing a positive boundary, here's how we will interact instead. Now, notice this you will still get back the same kind of crap you've been getting so far from that first email. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wait three weeks, don't respond, send another one. In other words, don't let yourself be reacting to him. You do what you would want to do, which is reach out, be present, start the kind of conversation you'd want to be in, and give him a chance to connect you on that level, which he might do or he might not do. But this will be you creating possibilities. God always... People always say God's a creator, which, of course, is true. But what I see mostly is that God doesn't create things. God creates possibilities. And so if I'm not responding to the negative stuff, taking some time, responding back in the positive way, I'd want to talk to my brother, say I'm trying to create the possibility of a different sort of relationship. And they might respond to it and they might not. But remember, it's just my job to create that possibility because that's what God does. Mm -hmm. Whether somebody responds, not up to me. Creating that possibility, that is up to me. Mm.
0: like, another uh, listener says, how does one deal with a spouse that has a personality disorder and doesn't believe they are abusive or mean? I want to be in love with my spouse, but the person doesn't seem capable of showing any love. This person will say or do anything uh, to get what they want, which results in lots of lies being told. It's very wearing.
1: Okay, so I have about 18 answers to that. So let me see <laughs> if I can sort them out in some kind of chronological order. Right. One, of course, I don't want you to tolerate that behavior. So if you get that kind of behavior, I want you to basically say, we're not going to talk like that anymore. That's not how we're going to do our relationship anymore. Leave the room if you need to. Whatever you need to do to make it clear, we're not going to do that. That's not okay with me. Because as long as I continue to tolerate that, that is what I will continue to get. I mean, it's the rule of the universe. This is how it works. <laughs> if I continue to tolerate a bad situation, I keep getting a bad situation. Now... Part of the reason why he lies is that he doesn't know how to be a team with you. And maybe you're not very good at that either. It's possible. So it's important to think, okay, if I was going to be a team, I don't go up to him and and start bossing him around. I go up to him and say, here's what I would like. What would you like? In other words, I'm inviting him into an honest conversation where we discuss honestly about what it is we both want and how we're going to run our day or how we're going to What we're going to have for supper, it doesn't matter. It's all the same. It's about really kind of creating a place where it's okay and safe to just tell the truth. Because mostly people lie because they don't think it's safe to say the truth.
0: Mm. Wow. All right, Glenn, here's another one that popped in here. Um, I am bound to continue a relationship with someone who is verbally cruel to me and my child. This person is an unbeliever. I want to be a good witness, but I may appear like a pushover.
1: There's no such thing as bound, so we're not even going to bother talking about that because that can't possibly be true, and I don't care. Honestly, it's it's not true. You have to drop that thought because that thought keeps you bound. You are not bound, but that thought will keep you bound. So so Jesus sends his disciples out two by two, Mark 6, other places in the Gospels also. He tells them not to take an extra cloak, extra tunic, or food with them because he doesn't want them to go into the town. He sends them with an exit strategy. He doesn't want them going into that town and thinking, "Yeah, if it works here, that's fine. If it doesn't, I don't care. I, got, I can go place. I got food. I got clothes. I can just do somewhere else. He wants them to go into that town and give them its absolute best shot. And they said, but if you do that, great. If they hear, you stay. If they don't, shake the dust off your feet and move on. So we need to understand, if we've been given a ministry and we actually give that our best shot— and the other person will not respond to my best shot, I'm not bound to stay there. I'm actually bound to shake the dust off my feet and move on. We have to be really clear about that biblical witness. Mm-hmm. We are not bound to stay in a situation that we can tell doesn't work. There's no transformation in that, and our God wants transformation.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, Glenn, I realized I did not uh, return to a question that oh, okay. we went to right before break, okay. and I feel bad. Um, it was we were going to have a discussion about the adult daughter that had harsh words to mom and mom was heartbroken, uh, cried all the way home, prayed about it. Jesus comforted her and she doesn't want to anger the daughter because she doesn't want her to ban the grandkids from her. Uh, So what about when that becomes um, a tool, a, um, a, what am I trying to look, what's the word I'm trying to look for? There's a, you've got, power over somebody yeah, extortion, extortion, right, extortion yes, yeah yes. there you go
1: uh-huh. so first thing i get that it would be easy to look at your daughter and be mad at her or frustrated or lash out because i get that she does some things she probably shouldn't be doing which are why it's hurtful to you now this is this takes a certain level of discipline so it's going to take some practice for you but i promise it'll be pay off I want you to look every time when you see your daughter, instead of looking at her with fear or thinking you have to walk around in eggshells, I want you instead to look at her with compassion and think, my daughter has some real struggles. Life is really hard for her sometimes, and Mm -hmm. she's not always very good at coping with that. When I go over there, I'm going to love her, I'm going to pay attention to her, and I'm going to be kind to her. Not because I'm afraid of her, but because I'm honoring the God who made her. So... That's a non-fearful, loving response. So I can't be extorted unless I'm fearful. As soon as I'm non-fearful, I can't be extorted. So I'm Mm -hmm. not going to go over there and be kind because I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go over there and be kind because I believe I'm called to be kind. Mm -hmm. And it's my daughter. And I'm going to do that pretty much no matter what. Mm -hmm. Again, it's about being unwavering in who I am and how I want to treat people. Mm -hmm. So instead of going home crying, I want you to go home thinking, my daughter's got struggles, that poor girl. I need to pray for her. Yeah, but her feelings are so hurt. I get that. But we get hurt feelings, and I'm not trying to be silly, but I want us to think clearly about this. We get hurt feelings because we take other people's struggles personally. As if somehow that's about us. But I just always want us to remember, no, their struggles are about them. Not in a oh, that's your problem kind of way. But just to understand, yes, they have struggles. Sometimes it shows up like that. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm sad for them that they have those struggles and that it shows up like that mm-hmm. to just really say that from the eyes of compassion, but through the eyes of the God who loves them and who thinks, and I will pray for them and I'm going to try and be kind to them. And I'm going to be my best self around them because they really need love. They mm. need help. Yeah. They, they're really in a tough spot. And so, and then I will go over there fearlessly because I'm not fearful.
0: Glenn, talk about the relationship between feelings and ego.
1: Mm. Great. Here's the difference. You've heard me talk a million times, but maybe some of the listeners haven't, about what I call think, feel, do. Mm -hmm. Everything I always say, you know, goes in that order. We have a thought, which triggers a certain feeling, which leads to a certain kind of behavior. Which is why Jesus never bothered to talk to people about changing their behavior. He was always on about changing their thinking. You've heard it said dot, 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 but I tell you. In other words, your way of thinking is so off that you're not going to be able to change your behavior as long as you keep having that thought. So if I look at a person judgmental and think, okay, but I want to treat them better, but I have a judgmental thought and my feelings towards them are condescending and sort of contemptuous, what are the odds that my behavior is not going to show that no matter what I do? It's going to come through no matter what. I literally have to change the way I think about them. Like they're precious to me. They're perfect in God's sight. I want to treat them like a child of God. I want to think about them differently, which will change my feelings and my behavior. So you ask the question what 's the difference between our feelings and our ego i 'm going to change that question just a little bit what 's the difference between our ego and our spirit our ego has certain thoughts that are only about ourselves which will lead to a certain set of feelings mostly judgmental our spirit has thoughts that are mostly about caring for others which will lead to feelings that are mostly loving and caring so When I let my ego do my thinking for me, I will have feelings that are worldly feelings, just like you were talking about in that Ephesians passage, was it, right at the beginning, Mm -hmm. when you were talking about um, Alex? Um, And then I will behave badly. Or I could listen and pray and ask God to help me think about that person or that situation rightly, which helps me focus on other people and to behave lovingly. So. My ego will lead to feelings that are harsh, judgmental, mean-spirited. My spirit will give me thoughts that lead me to be loving and caring. And I need to think about where is this thought coming from, which is why when I have one of those judgmental thoughts, as I was saying earlier in the show, I try to think this thought is not helpful to me. Yeah. It's bad for them, it's bad for me. So that helps me slow down long enough to ask God to give me a better thought.
0: All right, we're take a little break. Dr. Glenn Pickering hey. is my guest. We're talking about the subject of anger. If you've got a question... Send it on over via text to 877-933-2484 or you can email me bill at I'll give you those options. Again, 877-933-2484 or bill at myfaithradio.com. Be right back. Dr. Glenn Pickering is my guest. We're talking about anger. And Glenn, I think we're at the point of the show where I'd love to hear how we do anger management. Especially Thank you. if we've been on the anger train for a while.
1: Thank you. I, um, I have in my practice, for a variety of reasons, um, dealt over the years with probably, I don't know, somewhere between 900 and 1,200 people who come to me because some in their life referred to them referred them to me for anger management training, quote-unquote. And it might be a friend. It might be a, their boss at work might be the court system, but somebody has said to them, basically, you have to do something about your anger if you want to blank, if you want to keep being married to me, if you want to keep this job, if Mm -hmm. you want to not go to jail, (laughs) whatever it is, depending how serious that is. So, basically, they're coming to me saying, I need to do something about this anger problem I have. And maybe I don't even want to be here, but I recognize on some level that I need to be here. So, Glenn, I already don't like you, but what can you do to help me? I'm angry I'm here. That's right. Exactly. So, (laughs) so we start off at that kind of place. (laughs) Lovely. So, yes, it is. Um, Anyway, so. Um, so here's what I really have learned of dealing with those hundreds and hundreds of people who are coming out of that anger kind of background. Mostly, I think most of us would think, well, those are violent people. Those are really mad people. Those are really hurtful, mean people. And there are a few people who have come to me who are like that. But what I've seen by, and I mean, by and large, like 98% of the people who have quote unquote anger management problems is, is not so much that they're too angry. It's that they're actually not angry often enough. So on a scale of one to 10, something happens, that's a 1.8. And instead of saying, you know, hon, that kind of hurt my feelings, mm-hmm. they don't say anything. A couple of days later, something happens, that's a, you know, a 2.3. And instead of saying, you know, I never have liked that we do it this way. It kind of bugs me. I wish we did that a different way. They don't say anything. After 117 times of that, some simple dumb little thing happens and they blow up and everybody around them is left thinking, what was that? Yeah. Some teeny little thing happened and you had that big reaction to it. You got an anger problem. Yeah. And I think, yeah, and they're going to tell me that they're too angry. And like I say, once in a while, that's true. That's just a violent person. Way, way, way the majority of people, they're actually really, really bad at being angry. They don't know how to be what I call small mad. And most of the things that make us mad are small things. Somebody hurts our feelings or kind of is harsh with us or neglects to call us about something or maybe uses a sarcastic tone thinking they're being funny, but it doesn't feel funny to us. Or, you know what I mean? It's like... Or a or family always deals with things in a way that makes me feel like I don't really feel very important there. I feel sort of left out or condescended to. Or sometimes when you get mad at me, you're sort of harsh. Instead of hap- dealing with those small things at the time that they're happening, people with that quote-unquote anger management problem don't do anything. They're actually too passive until finally something blows up. And um, so what I see is for all those people who tell me they're too angry, I'm going to say, okay, cool. You're actually not angry enough. Your job is to get better at talking about being mad right now in the moment when all you actually are is a little bit mad, a little bit frustrated, a little bit irritated, a little bit hurt. Because that's what's actually happening. Now, what I find is that almost all of us, we have not been taught how to be a little bit mad. It's really interesting. Most of us, hmm, how can I say My wife, Gwen, and I both grew up in families that didn't teach us anything about dealing with anger. My family dealt with anger by pretending we didn't have any. (laughs) Yeah, that worked pretty well. And her family dealt with anger by yelling, throwing things, you know, peeling off in your car for two hours later and coming back and pretending nothing happened. So, so many people, the only thing they learn about anger is big words and loud words and her words. I'm so mad, I can't. And so they don't have any conception even of what it would look like to actually be mad in the moment. And so I work hard with them at developing what I call small mad, which means I have to develop a language of small mad. So you're very likely, if you spend time with me and Gwenda, hear us saying things like, I know it's not a very big deal, but that thing you just said kind of hurt my feelings. Or it's not a really big deal, but I kind of felt left out of that conversation. Or if it wasn't for the fact that I'm trying to speak up about things, I probably wouldn't say anything. But honestly, I felt like you were kind of mean to me when you said it that way. We need to find words that reflect small lang- small emotions because most of what's actually happening in the present is really a small thing. Mm-hmm. And I have an anger problem because I let those hundreds of small things get built up. I, um, I think often about when Gwen and I were first married, um, people, many people said basically to me something like this. Hey, Glenn, if Gwen does something that really bugs you, of course you should talk to her about it. But if it's just a little thing, you should let it go. Now, on the surface, it seems like good advice, right? But it's terrible advice. That's like saying to me, Glenn, if you get a big rock in your shoe, you should stop for a second and take that out of your shoe. But if you get a small rock in your shoe, you should just keep walking on it. Except then what happens? I get a blister. So because I have a blister, I start walking a little bit different. So pretty soon my knee hurts. Pretty soon every part of my body is going to hurt. Or I could have just taken 10 seconds, and dumped that little rock out and move on. So my wife and I now have many, many, many small conversations for that 10 or 20 seconds so that thing doesn't grow into something else. Because mm-hmm. all the things we are, quote, so mad about probably happened three weeks ago, and somehow we just keep building it up bigger and bigger in our mind. Whereas if I had just said that at the time, you know, and that actually felt kind of bad to me. So she could have said, huh, you know, that's actually a good point. I should have been more careful about that. Sorry. Great. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And yeah. we're just done with that.
0: There's a loving foundation there, though. Yes. There's, that's a, that's the big difference, I think. Like, right. Um, and there's a lot of people that would go, ooh, that wouldn't go well for me. Or they would say, I'm too codependent because if I say that, I'm going to tank the evening. Right. And now I mean, don't want the evening tanked. Here's a really cool a, thing. Over a 1.6.
1: Right. Now, here's a really cool thing. I want every one of you codependent people listening to hear this. I grew up in an incredibly codependent family. I totally get that from the inside out. And I want you to quit doing it. Stop it. <laughs> No, (laughs) kind of being a little silly, but, but, but it's really important to understand this. You think you're trying to be in control of something, but I promise you, you're not. I want you to quit thinking it's your job to make sure everything goes okay or to control the evening or to make sure nobody else acts badly. And I want you to quit thinking it's your job to run somebody else's life and just get better at running your own. And if you ran your own life and you were a little upset, you would say to your person, friend, spouse, hey, that was a little upsetting. You know what I mean? It's like, as codependents get it backwards. We think our life doesn't matter, but somehow we have power to tell everybody else how to run their life. And I think, no, the Bible is really clear. I've been given total power over my life and no power over anybody else's. So it's just my job to speak the truth. And if the truth is, and Jesus said, the truth shall set you free and it will. Now, but let me come back to the 50-50 part. Let's say I'm talking to a guy who has a quote-unquote anger management problem. I'm going to teach him about a small man. I'm going to help him get a language. I'm going to help him practice that. But I'm also going to talk to his wife, friends, coworkers about their half of that. If it's his job to start saying, hey, that kind of hurt my feelings. or That made me feel bad. or I really didn't like that. It's their job not to get defensive. You know, it says in 1st James, be, be quick to listen, slow to talk, slow to anger. I think, right. So if the person in my life is trying to get better at saying little things that bug them, then when they say, hey, Glenn, that kind of hurt my feelings, that felt bad to me, it's my job to say, thank you for telling me, how could we do that better? And I practice over and over, not just with a person who's developing that language, but the people are likely to hear that language from them, because it's 50-50. We both have to change our way of handling that for that thing to change, talk to couples all the time about how everything's 50-50 because if we want to change that behavior, it's not just one person has to change their behavior. We literally both have to create a place where it's safe to just say the truth. So if my truth is, how that kind of hurt my feelings, I need to know, Gwen's going to say, okay, well, I'm glad you could tell me. No, notice not I'm glad to hear it or I'm glad that, no, 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 Just but I'm glad you could tell me mm-hmm. instead of holding it in. How should I have done that differently? Or how could we do that differently? Because remember, everything God does is transformational, by bringing us back in a better relationship with God or with other people. So if my wife says, hey, thanks for telling me, how could we find a better way? See, we've just gone from me against you to me and you. And that's always God's goal. So, see, that process by itself is transformational. Hey, Han, that kind of hurt my feelings. Okay, Well, I'm I'm glad you could, I'm sorry, I'm glad you could tell me, how how can we do that different? What would be a better way for us to do that? Mm -hmm. And suddenly we are in a transformationally different conversation about how we deal with conflict.
0: Yeah, I got more questions, Glenn. Uh, Maybe I'll try to squeak this one in. Let's say Gwen is just walking out the door to go for a walk with a a girlfriend and you bring up one of your small mads to her. Uh You didn't um, put the dish, like I asked, please in the dishwasher and it's still in the sink. And she's on her way out the door. Bad timing on your part, I think.
1: Right. Yes, I'm not going to say it. Not because I want to stuff my feelings, but because I need to understand, hey, remember that the goal is to be transformational, to make our relationship better while dumping on her as she's going out the door is not making our relationship better because she doesn't have a chance to respond or to be gracious or to figure out a better way. Mm-hmm. So I'm literally sabotaging the process I just described. I'm making it so that process can't actually happen. Yeah. Well, that's not right.
0: All right. Dr. Glenn Pickering has yeah. been my guest. Go to his website, Glenn Pickering. That's two N's, uh, dot com. He offers this really lovely uh, Afternoons with Bill special. I think you go about midway right. down the page and you can fill out a form. There's no obligation. He won't bug you. You won't get out a mailing list. All you do is sign up to have a free 20-minute conversation with him. And trust me, you can get a lot in 20 minutes. Plus, you uh, get a free book. Free book. You get a free
1: book? Yeah, right yeah. there.
0: Another listener said, uh, does Dr. Glenn Pickering have written any books on anger? Um, no, say. but now that you asked no. that question, I'm mad yeah. that I haven't. Okay, yeah, so. so he's got work to do tonight. So that's, that's it. Right. We'll take a little break. We'll be back with uh, Dr. Uh, Greg Heddington. We're going to continue our study on the book of John. Be right back. the show. So glad to have uh, back on the program Dr. Greg Heddington. I think of him as a uh, Friday with friends because he's been a longtime friend and an incredible Bible teacher and a person that is uh, said, let's study the book of John. And I said, let's do it. So We're going to continue our study on the book of John. Greg, welcome back.
2: Bro, great to be back.
0: Great to be with you. Let's get started because I know we've got a lot of material to cover today.
2: All right, well we're gonna blast off here, so if you're ready to go, here we go. Welcome to the second lesson in our study of the Gospel of John. This week look at the first five verses in John. So since we'll be going quickly, mm-hmm. uh, take notes in Roman number one introduction. The last time I spoke I mentioned that the opening line of John is the most famous of all opening lines in the New Testament, and it's modeled after Genesis one one, which wins the title is the all time best opening sentence in all of human history. And since humans are the only one in our galaxy who write literature that we know of, well, that's a big title. That's a big one. How does the book of Genesis begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And about 1,600 years later, the Apostle John thinks about what his opening line for his gospel will be, and he decides to not open with an account of the birth of Jesus, as as did the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Instead, John decides to write a prologue that reflects the purpose, the reason, the meaning for the invasion of God to earth. So, John brilliantly decides to include a Greek word in the first verse, which all Greek-speaking people in the first century understood, and that's the word logos. Now, I understand that John might be thinking something like, well, I can't possibly improve on the first three words of Genesis, so why, why try? (laughs) I'll start with the same three words in the beginning to open up my book. After all, it's been about 1,600 years since Yahweh directed Moses to put those thoughts down in Genesis. So it's about time someone else did it, and why not me? I volunteer. So today, as we know, politicians often say, let me be clear— and the very next thing they say is not clear. So, so what, what is the thesis of John's gospel? Well, clearly he describes it in John 20, verse 31, when he says he's written this book, quote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, end of quote. John wants us to know Jesus is God so that we may live a life knowing the purpose, the reason for life on earth, as well as the opportunity for an eternal life in the hereafter. And John wants to establish the credentials of Jesus as God in the very first sentence, as if to say, some of you may think Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But let me tell you, he was not born there. Why? Because he always was. So with this kind of a cosmic authorship, we can, we can see why the symbol given to John by the church over the centuries has been that of the eagle, one who looks at truth from a heightened perspective. Roman numeral two, the word. As Christ followers, we define the Word of God to mean three different things. First, Scripture is the Word of God. Second, when a pastor or teacher speaks truth from Scripture, we say he or she gave the Word of God. And thirdly, John states in verse 1 that Jesus is the Word of God. So here's a question. Before John wrote his gospel and redefined the Greek word for word, which is logos, to represent Jesus, what did the word logos mean? So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. Again, those words are written in Greek, and the Greek word for word is Logos. So, how did people define Logos before John wrote his Gospel? Well, to determine how it was defined, here's a crucial point. The entire Western world, under subjugation to the Roman Empire, spoke Greek as far back as probably 3000 B.C., and then forward another three centuries in the, the A.D. And it might have been their third or second or third language after Oh, a lot of people in Europe today speak two or three or more languages fluently. But the point is, everyone knew what logos meant because, as we will see, it was a significant word. Okay, time for deviation. I have to announce that I'm about to tell a joke because in the oh, house, no. not everyone could tell that I was about to make a joke. Which
0: <laughs> I you should I, leave I, those to it, me, it, but go well, ahead. It's a,
2: bit, it's a bit deflating for the joke teller. So here it is. <laughs> What do you call someone who can speak three languages? Trilingual. What do you call someone who can speak two languages? Bilingual. What do you call someone who can speak only one language? American. (laughs) Okay, now, that joke is best told by an American because if someone from another country sells it, then it just might kind of hurt their feelings. And that's really, that's not the outcome of what you want from a good joke. You don't want to hurt someone's feelings. And anyway, for the best kind of joke, there must be some truth in it. So, all right, let's return to the point I was about to make. Before John's Gospel, the Greek word logos had a very different meaning. It was not the Greek word for God because the Greek word for God is theos, like theology, study of God. Instead, logos was a philosophical word. Now, I know a little Greek, and uh, that little Greek ha- happens to live in England. You see there's a little word play there? Yeah. I just <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that little Greek's named J. John. He's one of the outstanding evangelists in Europe, and I've come to know him through my wife, Carrie, and so on. But anyway, so I emailed my little Greek friend, J. John, and asked if he had any insight, because he is Greek, into the original meaning of the Greek word logos. He wrote back and he said this. We might as well pose this question to the greatest New Testament scholar today. He lives in England, and his name is N.T. Wright. Well, for years I have read N.T. Wright, although I I don't know him, but I do know that he is a a phenomenal, phenomenal writer, and J. John actually writes to him and and asks him what Logos means. So here I've written it down. This is what N.T. Wright responded. Logos is a big, all capital, B-I-G, letters big word in ancient Greek thought. It can mean everything from word, as in word in the language, all the way to reason, rationale, system, or computation in the financial system, narrative in the story sense, meaning, matter at issue. The list of definitions is almost endless. Then Dr. Wright makes this key point. Context is everything. And he goes on. For the Stoics, the Logos was the inner spark of life inside everything and becoming truly human meant to get in touch with the inner Logos and to live accordingly. Okay, now, listen to this. Many entire books are written on the word Logos alone. What point are you wanting to make or to avoid? Thanks again and warm wishes to you both, as ever, Tom. Well, I am not going to call him Tom. I'm <laughs> <Not mean>, either. <laughs> I mean, I, a, a Dr.
0: Dr. Dr. Wright, if you yes, please. Yes. I mean,
2: the most esteemed New Testament scholar in the world today, Any, nothing but Dr. Wright. But he was remarkably kind, of course, to for my little effort to find out the richness of the Logos. But as N.T. Wright says, context is everything. Now, in the context of this first verse, John wants the Greek-speaking world and anyone who reads his gospel to know that the word Logos, which we have just heard from Dr. Wright, uh, Wright basically to mean the purpose, the reason— the meaning of existence. It's not just some vague idea or principle for John, but in fact, the reason that purpose can be named because it is Jesus as the life-giving Word of God, which is actually our central idea for this whole lesson. Jesus is the life-giving Word of God. Now, I've taken some time to roll this out, but I hope that whenever you read John one one, whenever you read, In the beginning was the Word, that you will remember that word logos has two important meanings. First, in Greece, Greek in the past, it always meant purpose or reason or meaning for existence. always meant that. But secondly, that reason, that purpose, that meaning has now been identified by the Apostle John, and it is not just a philosophical idea. Instead, that word is a person, Jesus, God in human flesh, and Jesus has always been there because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. So God is, is is not a person. We know that with hands and feet. So he expressed himself in a way we can understand as a person. And the good news is that we can know the character of this invisible God when we get to know Jesus. And then John describes Jesus throughout his gospel, which we'll continue to study. So... What could possibly top good news like that for anyone who wishes that they could know God? After that, it almost seems like it's time for the benediction, but there <laughs> is more. So,
0: <laughs> I'm glad there's so, more.
2: Yeah, some people got, can get confused occasionally about faith, and they say, don't you believe in three gods? Well, Roman numeral three, the Trinity.
0: Ooh, that's a, that gets to be pretty exciting uh, to go there next. Um, All right. I think... Uh, um, I think it might be even time to just take our, our little break and then we come back. We'll have a nice big block of time to get into the Trinity. Does that sound okay, Greg?
2: That's fantastic.
0: Okay, good. Um, Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. We're in the study of John, so make sure you have your Bible out and a, a notebook uh, and a pen, and you can take wonderful notes as we are in John chapter 1. Be right back in 90 seconds. back to the show. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. We are in a study of the book of John. I'm uh, loving this, Greg. And I think uh, right before break we were talking about the Trinity and I thought we better make sure we uh, uh, clear up lots of space to talk about that.
2: Yeah, you know, this is one of these concepts a lot of people don't talk about because they think it's controversial. I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute, this is very important. I mean, we are what's called Trinitarians, so we've got to talk about this. So if you are taking notes, Roman numeral 3, the Trinity. In verse 1 of John, we read that Jesus was there in the beginning, which is a mind-blower. And the first three verses of John are some of the best scriptural evidence that Jesus is part of the Trinity, whom we also call the Triune God. Although no one is fully able to explain the Trinity to everyone's satisfaction, I want to at least address this absolutely foundational aspect of our faith because, as I said, we are Trinitarians. The Trinity is such an important part of later Christian doctrine that it's striking that the word Trinity does not appear in Scripture. But the Trinity is based on scriptural truth. And in the following years after the resurrection of Jesus, the Church developed a better understanding of the Trinity. Scripture does not allude to the Trinity in verses like, uh, I'm sorry, does allude to the uh, Trinity in verses like the Great Commission, which Jesus gives to his disciples. A lot of us are familiar with this, Matthew 28:19. Remember, again, that Matthew was written about 30 years after the resurrection, and the church is just beginning to understand what Jesus meant when he said, "Here's the words: Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, <clears throat> baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son." and the Holy Spirit. There they are, the Trinity, all three right there. Also, Genesis 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now today we know that Spirit is referring to what we will later call the Holy Spirit, though at that time Moses certainly didn't understand it to be called the Holy Spirit. So in Genesis 1-2, it's our first scriptural evidence that the Holy Spirit was there in the formation of the world, and the Gospel of John completes the Trinitarian picture in verse 1 as he includes Jesus with it. Furthermore, in his final greetings to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 13-14, the Apostle Paul writes this, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Now, that one version of that verse, written by an American from the Deep South, claims that Paul actually says, y'all, instead of you all.
1: <laughs> uh, that,
2: that version, I have to admit, is academically suspect, but it's, a, it's what I like to call little Southern humor. I like it. Yeah, maybe very little. Yeah. So, question, can we prove these things about the Trinity? No, we cannot. And we cannot prove that there is a God either. But... There's lots of evidence for both. Let me say that again. Can we prove these things about the Trinity? No, we cannot prove them, and we cannot prove there is a God either. But there's lots of evidence for both. That's a that's a, that's a a good one-liner. As we'll see in the study of John, uh, Jesus makes four statements that express his equality with God the Father, in which chapters now does that happen? It helps me, when I was younger and even now, to remember if they're even-numbered, Chapters So that happens to be chapters 8, 10, 12, and 14. Those are the chapters in which Jesus equates himself with God. So the issue of the Trinity was discussed among believers for decades after Jesus left the earth until finally, in 325 A.D., the Roman emperor Constantine, some of you remember from history, he was the first, quote, Christian emperor in the Roman Empire, he convened a meeting of the church bishops at Nicaea. Constantine was a big convener. And Nicaea is in present-day Turkey. And our belief today of three persons within the one God who serve each other, the Trinity, was codified. You know, I've always wanted to use the word codified. This It yeah. seems like the, this is really the perfect opportunity. Yeah,
0: and I don't even know what it means, but I love it. Well, and now I'm going to
2: explain what it is, but I'm just <laughs> thinking now that I've used it, I've got to at least use that once a year. Uh, but absolutely. what it means, Bill, just, and I wasn't sure myself, but it means to, to reduce several ideas into a principle or rule. So the Trinity was codified. It was reduced into several ideas into a principle or rule. Oh, yes, and while the bishops were there, finally getting together in one place, they decided they might as well codify what the Church believes in a creed And what was the outcome? The Nicene Creed, which affirms the Trinity, and some of us recited each week in worship. And the Apostles' Creed, which others of us know, came along a little later in 390 A.D. So this idea of the Trinity, in which the three parts all serve one another, is anathema. That means it is is bad news to Muslims, who accuse us of believing in three gods, but they do not understand. All three are co-equal. Or we might even say tri-equal. And as I've said, it's not a simple concept, yet there are many other concepts concerning God that we don't understand either. But that's not surprising when we consider that they originated from an eternal God who's always been around. Now that is cosmic.
0: Mm, boy, is it ever.
2: Now, some of us have made attempts to rationally explain the Trinity by using comparisons to H2O. And they're not bad. For example, what are the three forms of H2O? Liquid ice and steam. Of course, that illustration falls short because the same amount of H2O is not liquid, ice and steam all at the same time. So the idea of the Trinity is just not an easy concept, but I think we can explain in a couple of sentences. And of course, the thing about us, we like difficult concepts to be simple. And speaking of the Trinity, if you're really interested in reading a a short, understandable discussion on the Trinity, you can look at a chapter called The Three Personal God in Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. This is one of my all-time favorite books outside of Scripture, Mere Christianity. And one of the statements that Lewis makes is this, quote, If Christianity was something we were making up, of course we could make it easier. But it's not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We're dealing with fact. Of course, anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother with end of quotation. We do know that in eternity, God has community within the Trinity, and he wants to share this community with us. It's like a holy dance in which all three persons equally take the lead. And another great theologian, J.I. Packer, who is the theological editor of the English Standard uh, Version of the Bible, which some of us had, and one of the most influential uh, evangelical scholars, Before he died four months ago at the age of 93, he said this about the Trinity, and I hope it's helpful for you because, again, I I wrote these notes down when I heard them. He said, all three persons in the Trinity are more closely bonded than any human beings. Each has his own nature because they all work together, and words like subordination or hierarchy do not fit. God the Father calls the plans. God the Son is the executor of the plans in agreement with God the Father. God the Holy Spirit is the hands-on functionary of the three, and also in agreement with God the Father and God the Son. It's the end of quote. It's a lot to take in at one time, but basically, so in this dance of the three, no one leads. Augustine, the theologian was so brilliant, it's like he dropped down from outer space into Algeria, In fact, he's the most influential writer of of the Christian faith since uh, St. Paul. Augustine said this, There is unity and equality among the three in permanent coordination. They all have one will or else they would not be God. So, the Trinity is a mystery which transcends our finite minds even while there is clear evidence of it in Scripture, and it is an essential part of the understanding of our faith. Well, Bill, that's my best shot at trying to give an understanding of the Trinity. So, hopefully, it's helpful. Roman numeral 4, if anybody's taken notes, who is Jesus? The central idea of this lesson is Jesus is the life giving word. And we've now seen that when we read the first verse of John, we keep that in mind when we read the Greek word for word, which is logos, and we know that it originally meant the reason, the purpose, the meaning for existence. And then John redefined logos and explained the reason for existence which is to know that Logos is Jesus the Christ. And the Apostle Paul describes Jesus this way in Colossians 1, verse 15, quote, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. End of quotation. That scripture answers the question millions of people have asked as to whether Jesus was just a great teacher or just a prophet or a miracle worker. He is, in fact, the eternal son of God. And best of all, this is not just academic. He loves us and wants us to know him. It's kind of like, well, I always knew my mother thought I was special. (laughs) But now we know that the one who really counts in the universe thinks we're special. Now, as we discuss cosmic things, it reminds me a bit of how I feel sometimes when I watch History Channel on television. I don't know if any of you watch History Channel. You know there's some excellent shows about history that are very informative, as well as many programs about the supernatural and the unexplained. And they're certainly interesting to watch, and yet as the years go by, and that's those years never stop, we see America often moving further away from its Judeo-Christian tradition to more fringe beliefs, as many people take seriously what used to be known as science fiction. These shows are not evil, but they cause us to think, and they think, how is it? So for me, it makes makes me think, how is it that in a recent survey, 52% of American adults say they believe Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Hmm. But this one's even more alarming. Of that group of American adults, 30% of the people who check the box and say they are evangelical believers also agree that Jesus was merely a great teacher. Now, the enemy of this world has clouded the minds of the majority of people from truth that we can know that the eternal God, the creator of the stars and the suns and the planets and the galaxies and black holes, this is, in fact, God, and this we see him and know him through his loving son, Jesus. Roman numeral five, an extravagant God. It's like a little journey down cosmic lane to the very beginning to expand our minds a little bit because we have an extravagant and creative God. So here's a question. When did God create the earth? Well, if you're not an advocate of the young earth theory, then you would go along with most scientists, and they say that the earth was formed about 4.5 billion years ago, which is an almost unimaginable amount of time. And if humankind was only around for a few thousand years, what was God doing with all the rest of that time in between? I mean, we have an extravagant God. Has anybody ever visited the La Brea Tar Pit in Los Angeles? It's a museum dedicated to researching and exhibiting ancient tar pits and prehistoric animal remains. On the wall of the museum, they have drawn a timeline from the creation of the Earth roughly 4.5 billion years ago, give or take a few billion. (laughs) Up up until now, it's a 70-foot-long mark along the wall with each inch representing about 7 million years. Now, Can you guess about how much distance of that 70-foot line on the wall represents the amount of time that humans have been on the Earth? Well, it's somewhere around a half inch. Wow. So again, the question, what was God doing all that time? What about the Jurassic period and all those dinosaurs? Where does T-Rex fit in? I don't know, and I know the Bible's not a scientific textbook, but it is the story of God's plan and purpose for his people. So we can conclude from that timeline that we have a creative and extravagant God. So I'm trying to expand our minds a little bit so that when we read the first verse in John, we'll not just rush by those words in the beginning. I mean, think of the daily miracles we experience, the sun coming up, a sun going down, and and why? Well, because God has it planned that way. That the sun spins around the, the um the sun spins all the way around one time just once every day, always without fail. How fast is it going? It's going about 600 miles an hour, but we cannot feel it. So that's the way God planned it. And that's that's a nice touch. Stunning. Yeah. Now, how about the four seasons? I'm not referring to the singing group, but we have four seasons because our creator and his creativity decided to tilt the earth on its axis just about right angle at 23.5 degrees. So it will rotate at that angle every year just once around the sun so we can enjoy the variety of four seasons. What would happen if the earth were just off, oh, a, a one millionth of a degree? Evidently, when I understand it, it would be uninhabitable. Now, the big question, why did God, and this is the final question I'm going to ask, why did God even create us? ever asked that question. He did not create us because he was lonely, because God had fellowship within the Trinity. We know from Ephesians 2, 4 and John 3:16 how much God loves us. But God is always, well, he's like an artist. And artists paint pictures and they create things which reflect something about who the painter is. And God, God seems to have made us for his pleasure and for ours as well. And he's wired us to attain true joy only when we discover that the logos, that purpose, that reason for being, which was so elusive for the Greeks to attain, that logos has finally become known, and it is God in human form, none other than Jesus. Wow! I'm going to close with this, Bill.
0: Um, As to quotation. be brief, we've got 30 seconds.
2: You bet. It's a quotation from C.S. Lewis. He said, "If you're the Creator God, how would you communicate your message of love and desire for a relationship with your creatures in a way that you'll uh, that they will understand?" Line at your foot is your dog. Imagine for the moment that your dog and every dog in the world is in deep distress. Some of you love dogs very much. What would you do about it? How could you help him to understand? Would you put down your human life, leave your loved ones, your jobs, your hobbies, and become a dog, which would be a poor substitute? Would you oh, do
0: this? We're out of time. Sorry, Greg. It's That's been okay. wonderful. That's what Jesus did for us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.